Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. We're concluding our series that we've been in for quite some time. The theme of our series has been strength in weakness. And this morning's final theme is strength in weakness through unity. You know, I love preaching verse by verse. It keeps me out of trouble or gets me in trouble. But the beautiful thing is I'm just the umpire every single week. I just call it as I see it. I get people that say, man, Bob, you really stepped on my toes this morning. It's like, well, God stepped on your toes. Because all I did was preach the passage that was planned from, you know, several months earlier when I chose by God's leading the book that we're going through. So it's very timely that we're talking about unity in the church because we live in an incredible age of disunity in the church especially in America. And you need to know, I'm not preaching on unity this morning because it's some hobby horse, because I've got a bee in my bonnet. I'm preaching on unity because that's just the next passage. And how exciting to know that every single week when you come here, we're not throwing things at you. We're simply presenting the next text, whatever it may be. It may, in fact, relate to conditions that we're facing. But I'm not out to say, oh my goodness, Oak Mountain's struggling with unity. I actually don't think we are. But this is what the text says. And you need to realize that the Corinthian church was struggling with unity. They were a mess. You talk about a dysfunctional church. They'd make almost any church Look, godly and spiritual by comparison. You see, these false teachers came through Corinth after Paul had planted the church. And they tried to turn the people in the congregation against Paul. Now, they did this by attacking him externally. Just like the people wanted Saul for king because he looked so great. These false teachers boasted in their outward appearance. They boasted in their communication gifts. They presented themselves as the sharp people. The sharp people. Paul writes back and says, God doesn't often choose the sharp people. Matter of fact, he most often chooses the weak to shame the strong. And he most often chooses the foolish to shame the wise. So that people might recognize the power doesn't come from us, but comes from God. So Paul spends the entire letter turning the teaching of the false apostles on their heads. And the people in Corinth were at odds with each other because some were following Paul and some were following these false teachers. And so they were at each other's throats as well. And Paul says, we need to come together. There's too much at stake. And so in his final appeal, he appeals to unity. September 18th, 2021. A very big day is approaching. Nine 1821. A big day for some of us in this congregation. A really big day for me. The Auburn Tigers travel to Happy Valley 
to take on the Penn State Nittany Lions at Beaver Stadium in good old State College, PA, Happy Valley. <laughs> I knew somebody had to say that. Now, for those of you who will be fortunate enough to make the trip, you will see a stadium, <laughs> if COVID uh, abates, that seats 107 to 110,000 people. The place rocks. You will hear Penn State, the entire crowd, unite together to shout out Penn State's slogan. We are Penn State. 53,000 fans on one side of the stadium cry out with one voice, We are! And in response, all in unison, 53,000 other fans from the other side of the stadium, Penn State! And it goes back and forth five or six times. The whole stadium shakes. And it's astounding how clear it is when tens of thousands of people can say the same thing at the same time and everybody can hear it. Well, if you've paid attention at all to television you'll know that Penn State's slogan is actually being used quite often in our day. If you're watching football, we are Fox Sports, right? We've heard that. If you're familiar with the plane crash in 1970 of the football team of Marshall University when so many players died, we are Marshall. I was watching... Uh, a sports event yesterday, and there's some insurance company I've never heard of. We are blah, blah, blah insurance. We are the U.S. Navy. And then this is one that makes me the maddest. In Birmingham, Alabama, we are Hunter Street. How dare they take my slogan? It should have been Oak Mountains. I'll never forget the first time I saw a bumper sticker. We are. I thought, wow, we got a Penn State in front of me. Hunter Street. It's like, well, where did the slogan come from? Well, Penn State, of course, has their tradition that it goes way back to 1947. Now, not that these guys are infallible, but ESPN concurs. ESPN did one of their shorts, uh, one of their mini documentaries on the We Are cry of Penn State. And sure enough, they also say it goes back to 1947. Penn State was number four in the nation, undefeated, and they were invited to play in the Cotton Bowl against also undefeated Southern Methodist University. They were ranked number three. Penn State had a tailback named Wally Triplett. SMU had a tailback named Doak Walker, after whom the Doak Walker Award is given every year to the best running back in college football. And Najee Harris from Alabama won the Doak Walker Award this year. Now, as um, uh, Black History Month starts tomorrow, you need to realize that Wally Triplett for Penn State was black. As a matter of fact, he became the first African-American drafted by the NFL and to start for an NFL team. 
But in 1947, segregation reared its ugly head once more. And Penn State was told that Wally Triplett could not stay with the rest of the players because the hotel was whites only. There was a rumor circulating that the SMU team wanted to meet with the Penn State team to discuss them not even bringing their African-American players. The captain for Penn State was a lineman, white, and he said, we are Penn State. There will be no meetings. We're playing. Wally Triplett ended up scoring the tying touchdown with seconds left. And the game ended 13-13. We are Penn State. The reason why that slogan has become so popular is because people realize, organizations realize, teams realize that unless we act as a unit, unless we're unified, there's no way we're going to achieve what we set out to achieve, no matter who we are. The interesting application of this story, which again uh, has been um, genuine uh, history, according even to ESPN, is that to this day, you can watch any Penn State sport, male, female, and on no jersey in any sport will you ever see the name of a player for Penn State. Does not exist. Because... We are Penn State. No cult of the self. No stardom. You're not in it for your name. You're in it for Penn State. Sadly, in our day, our society worships the cult of self. The cult of of individualism where every single one of us is out to assert our rights and our rightness and nothing will contribute to disunity more than that kind of mentality so Paul plays the cheerleader And as he concludes the letter, he says, we are the church. And we must come together. Let's all stand of reverence for God's word. A very brief passage as we conclude. 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 to 14. This is God's word. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. May God bless the hearing and teaching of His inspired, infallible, inerrant, an authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he longs for us as his children to be one.
to be unified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this focus. God, we desperately need it right now in the American church. So please, Holy Spirit, fall upon us and teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So we're going to look at uh, three ways that God builds unity into the church. And the key is humility in all these steps. Three steps to unity. First of all, we are all called to promote unity. If you look at verse 11, there are five commands given in quick succession. Very short and sweet. Bump, 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 bump. And all of those commands are in the present tense. So Paul is giving us commands that we are to continually and constantly put into practice all the time. The first command in verse 11, rejoice. You see that in Paul's letters constantly. In Philippians, he says, rejoice. Again, I say to you, rejoice, for it is a safeguard for you all. Now, how is rejoicing a safeguard for us? Well, first of all, it keeps our faith buoyed. We rejoice that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. We rejoice in all the benefits of our salvation. We rejoice that every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms are given to us in Christ. We rejoice no matter what the circumstances. Why? Because God's in control. And when we rejoice, it develops a positive mentality. By the way, the world didn't come up with positive thinking. God did. Okay? Philippians talks about whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is excellence, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is good. Let your mind dwell on these things. So as we rejoice, we're filled with a positive mindset. And that positive mindset contributes to unity. It promotes unity. Now, conversely, a negative mentality will always produce division. If all we ever focus on is what is wrong with our world, it will lead to negative thoughts which will lead and contribute to division. Look, what do you think the media is trying to sell you as a message? The media is trying to get you amped up. Why? Because that's how they sell advertising. Do not think for a moment that the media actually wants to give you truth. They don't. They want to get your emotions amped. And they are sowing division. They are sowing discord. And so many Christians in the American church are buying it. Hook, line, and sinker. And that is why we have division. Tim Keller is a man I deeply respect. Recently retired after planting and pastoring Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Probably one of the greatest communicators and apologists of our day. Do you know that there's a whole segment of the American church that is beginning to call him a communist? 
Why? Because he actually takes seriously what God's word says about taking care of the oppressed, the downcast, the poor, the disenfranchised. You realize that's why Israel was judged, because they didn't take care of those people. And you realize the New Testament is filled with that kind of command. And yet we have people who are calling Tim Keller a communist and a socialist for being biblical. Oh, and then we have John Piper, who has spent decades being faithful. And now he's considered by many as a persona non grata, a heretic. Why? Because he refused to support Donald Trump Trump for president. Look, we are allowed to have different views on things. But every issue is not a hill to die on. We need to rejoice over what is good and right and beautiful in the world. And secondly, verse 11, we need to aim for restoration. Instead of creating division, we need to reconcile. Restoration is a fishing term. Uh, Along the Sea of Galilee, if a fisherman has been fishing all night long, pulling in the catches, and he gets rocks in there as well, and, and the fish, the amount of the fish, the weight begins to tear the nets. To restore the net was was the word that Paul is using here. Take care of the holes. Take care of the rips. Take time to mend that which is broken. And we as Christians are called to constantly promote unity by aiming for restoration. We're to aim to restore and reconcile broken and damaged relationships. Is there a broken or damaged relationship with another Christian that you're aware of in your life? God grieves when he sees his adopted sons and daughters living in disunity. And Paul says, aim for restoration. Thirdly, in verse 11, comfort one another. This goes back to the beginning of the letter where Paul says we comfort others with the same comfort through which we've been comforted by God in any need we have to be comforted. We are not to walk around pointing out each other's faults. We're not to be fault-finding in the church. We're not to be on a witch hunt all the time. We're not to be the, the Christian police that are looking for something that's, some, that's off in people's lives. We're actually to comfort each other. Where each of us is hurting and wounded by this sin-sick world. We get fourthly in verse 11, we're to agree with each other. <laughs> See, not, not every disagreement is supposed to be a war. Not every disagreement is supposed to be a battle. Do you realize that God has left many, 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 many things gray for the Christian? Not everything is black and white, people. There's a whole bunch of gray where God simply leaves it up to us and our bent and our giftedness and our passion and our burdens 
And we are to seek to agree with each other in the Lord. Right? We don't compromise the gospel. But the gospel is very basic. <laughs> Jesus lived in a life we couldn't live, died a death we couldn't offer, paid the penalty for sin. If we would repent and turn and transfer our trust from ourselves and our own record of righteousness to the work of Christ and the promise of grace, then we will be saved. Okay, now that's worth dying for. Few other things are. Paul says in Philippians 2 to two women in Philippi, I urge Iodia and Syntyche, agree in the Lord. They were at each other's throats. Who knows? Maybe one was a Republican, one was a Democrat. We don't know. But they were at each other's throats. And Paul says, agree in the Lord. Sometimes I think that the American church has bought into a witch hunt mentality. We're trying to burn each other at the stake. Romans 12, 16, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. And then fifthly, the fifth command, live in peace. Cultivate peace. Romans 14, 19, pursue the things that make for peace. Romans 12, 18, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Where do you see in Scripture pick fights? Where do you see that? Let me answer. You won't. We're not called to pick fights. We are called to live in peace. Can you imagine Penn State going against uh, Auburn even with 110,000 fans present? And the quarterback is at odds and in a different page from the halfback. And the wide receivers are ticked off at the quarterback and they're angry and they're not going to play for him or with him. And the, and the defense is, is mad at their coordinator and they're not going to do the assignments. And the linebackers are upset with the cornerbacks and the safeties. What percent possibility does that team have to win? Zero. Zero. Winning teams are never disunified. And you're never going to find a losing team that doesn't, in fact, experience a lot of conflict and disunity. We are called to promote unity. Jesus prayed in John 17. This is his last prayer, in a sense. You, you pray those things that are most on your heart if you know you're about to die. And what's Jesus pray for? Unity. That they may be one, Father as you and I are one. Promote unity by pursuing those five commandments to be constantly practiced. Then secondly, promote unity, we also need to express unity. Three actions that enable us to express unity. First of all, verse 11, finally, brothers, he's not talking about just men, brothers and sisters, and, and the way we express unity is by treating each other as family. Now, you say, some of you, you don't want me to treat my fellow Christians as family. You just don't know how dysfunctional we are. No, I do. We all do. We've all experienced it. But God calls us to treat each other as beloved family members. 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 and 2. Encourage older men as fathers, younger men 
as brothers. Treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters. Treat one another as family. Express unity. Secondly, look at verse 12. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I can remember being in Beirut uh, where we were uh, bringing the Battle for the Heart discipleship process to some ministry partners in Beirut, Lebanon. And I remember walking the streets of Beirut and you would see men with men, women with women, and you would see them greet each other with a kiss on each cheek. Now, clearly, that's cultural, right? But the New Testament is from the Middle East. And so if we don't do it literally, then certainly we need to find ways to express sincere, holy, godly affection for one another. Now, a case can be made that we are actually to continue the tradition of the holy kiss. I'll never forget uh, being up at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis one day. There's a guy I deeply admire. His name's Jerem Bars. I, I admire Jerem Bars because, uh, first of all, he's British and he's so soft-spoken but so wise, profound, great apologist for the faith. Been a professor at Covenant for, for decades. Well, he was a direct disciple of Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer, God used to save my faith. Francis Schaeffer was an apologist who helped me reason through why a world without God is nonsensical. And it was the only thing that helped my faith. All this evidence that demands a verdict, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, but it didn't help me. Schaeffer showed me a world without God is nonsensical. And so I had this deep respect and admiration for Jerem. We had a board meeting up there, and I was there, and I saw Jeremy, and I walked over, and I reached out to hug him, and sure enough, he just plants two kisses on my cheeks. Now, you need to know how that felt. You need to know how that affected me. I felt seen by one of the men I most respect in life. I felt like I can't believe this man cares about me to display affection like that. To this day, I've not forgotten it. You know, we all feel rejected at times. We all feel isolated at times. And sometimes words don't go deep enough. Sometimes we need a holy display of affection. You know, if it gets to the point where you're so paranoid about your own sexual appetite that you're unwilling to show affection to others, I think you might got some issues. One of the things I always try to do with single women in this church is give them a hug. Where else are they going to get it? Give each other a holy you know, this was unheard of in Paul's day, that, that, that people from different socioeconomic classes, people of different races and ethnicities would get together and give each other a holy kiss. This was unheard of. It's hard to stay angry and divided when you show others affection. Keep on finding ways to express affection, express unity. And then look at th verse 13. All the saints greet you. 
Now, all the saints means all the people of Macedonia, people from Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica, who knew just how messed up the church at Corinth was. Yet they all sent their greetings. They were all willing to show hospitality because that's what Christians do for one another. Do you realize that that's one of the elements that's demanded of an elder? That he is known for showing hospitality. Notice, it doesn't say that he can pass all the doctrinal tests, although that's important. What it says is he must be hospitable. God cares about us having a warm, welcoming attitude toward each other, even those with whom we disagree. And then thirdly and finally, we not only promote unity, we not only uh, express unity, but we also reflect unity. Look at verse 11. This is key. After five commands to promote unity, Paul then adds, and the God of peace will be with you. How do you read that? There's only two ways to read it. One is from a performance paradigm that makes God's love and peace and His presence with you conditional on how well you fulfill the five commandments to promote unity. Okay, let's go there. You know, this is what legalists don't do. Legalists don't follow their conclusions to the nth degree when they would see how ridiculous their choices in life are. If Paul is saying, if you do one, two, three, four, five, then the God of peace will be with you, how do you know if you're rejoicing enough? How do you know if you're aiming enough for reconciliation in your relationships? How do you know if you're being comforting enough? You see what I'm saying? The legalist has to really lower the bar to feel good about himself or herself so that the if-then condition can be fulfilled. If you do these five things, then the God of peace and love will be with you. Trust me, as someone who is a performance junkie, that will make you go crazy. Now, what Paul is actually saying is, in light of these five commands, remember this. The God of peace will always be with you. As you're seeking to promote unity, as you're seeking to show uh, a joyful spirit, as you're seeking to avoid a judgmental spirit, as you're seeking to comfort others and all those things He commands, remember, the God of love and peace will be with you. See, five commands and, oh, don't forget this, the God of love and peace will be with you. See, we don't read Scripture with a performance mentality. We read it with a gospel framework. He says the same thing in Philippians 4 about that positive mindset I said earlier. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is excellence, whatever is praiseworthy, set your mind on these things and the God of peace will be with you. What's he saying? Is he saying that if you try hard enough to focus on these right things, then the God of peace is going to be with you? Good luck with that. No. He's saying, set your mind on these things. And oh, by the way, remember, as you do seek to set your mind on those things, the God of peace is with you. God's presence and power is not conditional on our performance. 
So when it comes to pursuing unity, promoting unity, expressing unity, reflecting unity, we're called to reflect the very heart of God. God is the God who desires his kids to live in unity. To have the same mind. And the promise is there that he will be there in his love and peace to grant us love and peace so that we might express love and peace. And then lastly, look at the Trinitarian benediction in verse 14. I often conclude our services with this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. Now think about this. So many of us are divisive or not really promoting unity because we're after uniformity. God doesn't care about uniformity. God himself does not even promote uniformity. God is unity with diversity. God the Father is not God the Son. God the Son is not God the Spirit. God the Spirit is not God the Father. God the Father is not God the Son. <laughs> okay, talk about being judgmental. Uh, I'm going to tell them myself. And don't get self-conscious when you're with me. But people that thank the Father for dying on the cross for them? No! The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. The distinctions matter. And yet God is one God. How can that be true? I don't know. I don't get it. I can't explain it. I can't rationalize it. It's just what Scripture says. And we are to reflect the unity with diversity of the Trinity. So please, if you're tempted to try to have everybody think like you, stop it. That's not the church. If Penn State plays Auburn in September and everybody wants to be a wide receiver, everybody goes out for a pass. Guess what? The quarterback is toast. If everybody on defense goes with one wide receiver, <laughs> the tailback's got it made. Hey, y'all. It's unity with diversity. And so much is at stake. July 2nd, 1776, after a whole bunch of disagreement and rancor, our founding fathers finally agreed on the content of the Declaration of Independence. July 4th, 1776, Independence Day. Why do we celebrate that? Do you realize only two people signed the Declaration of Independence on, January, on July 4th? Two. Just two. John Hancock, who was the president of the Continental Congress and the secretary of the Continental Congress, I even forget his name. Two people. The rest of the people waited over a month. Why? Because so much was at stake. Putting your name on the line, saying you're all in for the unity of the colonies, these United States. Ben Franklin stood up, supposedly, in between July 4th and August 2nd, and said, Men, we must hang together, or we will most assuredly hang separately. There was a lot at stake to promote unity 
in the cause of independence. If they were to lose, they would all be butchered. And they knew that. Finally, they signed on August 2nd, 1776. One guy, I don't know his name, one guy waited until 1781. The war's practically over before he signed. You see, he was going to do it the easy way. We must hang together or we will most assuredly hang separately. Jesus won the war. The war is taken care of, but the American church, we could lose our candlestick. Make no mistake. The American church could could go down the tubes and play absolutely no part in the second coming of Christ. There's a lot at stake. Are we going to allow the media to get us amped up about different issues so that we get at each other's throats? Or are we going to focus on those things that make for peace? We are the church. May God give us the grace to act and think like his children. Let's pray. Father, if there's any area that we need to repent of this morning, if we have held grudges or been critical of other Christians when we had no business being so, God, grant us repentance. Grant us humility. God, that we would think we're right and other people got it wrong. Now, God, we know there is truth. But, Lord, not all truth is worth dying over. So help us to major on the majors, minor on the minors. Help us to remember to keep the main thing the main thing. And, God, promote unity God, I thank you for Oak Mountain. I I have experienced so much love, affection, unity in this church, through this church, from this church. God, may it continue. God, thank you that this doesn't need to be a slap on the hand, but just a continued call to promote unity, express unity, and reflect unity. By your grace, in Jesus' name.